Well, that's cool. Right? Hello, fellow isolators, and welcome to the fourth edition of the Well That's Cool Book Club, and our first meeting of 2021. Things are getting cold here in Edmonton, so what better time to curl up with a good book and get reading? Or, in this case, to get on Zoom with some friends new and old and talk about books. Let's join the club right now. So I'm hosting this episode from Edmonton, Alberta, which is on Treaty 6 territory, the ancestral and traditional territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, Nakota Sioux, and the Métis peoples. I am honored and thankful to be able to live here and celebrate curiosity on this land and to be able to connect with you wherever you are joining us from. I also want to say a special hello to the live studio audience joining the book club this month. Nice to see some new faces and glad you're here for the conversation. So as a reminder, we will have a quick question period at the end of this recording, and I hope you'll stick around for the book club meeting after that and share what you're reading in the new year. Now, this month's book club meeting is going to be an interesting one. Uh, I am joined tonight by CJ Levine, a communications scholar and author of Inveritas. I have it here in ebook form. Inveritus was published by New West Press in May 2020, which we will get into about the timing as well of that release. This novel explores the nature of truth and the complexities of human communication, all within a rich and imaginative fantasy version of Ottawa. And it was actually named Tor.com Reviewer's Choice, one of the best books of 2020. So congratulations to CJ on that. We're going to talk about this book and a few other things tonight. But for now, it is my pleasure to welcome CJ Levine to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Great, for, great to have you here. So I guess actually to start, we should maybe talk about that. May 2020, this is your debut novel and it comes out a month and a half into a pandemic. What was that like? How did that all go for you? Uh, okay, I, I'm going to answer your question. I will first do uh, a land acknowledgement for Red Deer before I forget, because uh, I am coming to you from Red Deer and this is Treaty 7 territory, I believe, uh, the traditional lands of the Blackfoot, uh, Stony Nakoda and Sutina people. Thank you. Uh, as for your question, uh, you know, it, it, it didn't go great, uh, I think is, is something that most authors who had debut novels come out last year uh, would say. And also, in the larger scheme of things, doesn't really seem worth kvetching about or, or worrying too much about. One thing that was really nice uh, was the way that uh, so many events did uh, pivot to online. Uh, there have been so many Zoom events. Uh, the Nebula Conference has been ongoing all year. Uh, we've been doing readings online. Uh, things like your book club have started, and that's been really nice. Uh, so in terms of the support that I and I think other authors have received over the internet, uh, it's been really impressive and really heartwarming. Uh, in terms of launching my live stream into the gaping maw of a global pandemic, yeah, that, that part wasn't so amazing. I'm sure it was a, a bit of a, well, I mean, the process of launching a book would have been planned and started long before May anyways, long before March 2020. So I'm sure it was a bit of a, a change of plans on the fly as well. Yeah, I, I mean, um, the book had been scheduled at least about a year and a half ahead of time. 
yeah. uh, from what I recall. So yeah, the the lead-in was already set, the production was already set, and not to mention, I mean, if you're a publisher and you delay all your books because of the pandemic, then you just end up with a huge glut of books coming out after the pandemic and assorted difficulties with um, printing access and, and distribution. And so everyone, I mean, everyone mostly, there, I know there were some some of the larger, like, you know, kind of top 10 publisher titles that got pushed back. Uh, mm. But for the most part, everything just came kind of came out on schedule because you did what you had to do. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, we're glad that it is out there and it seems to be doing really well. So congratulations again on the uh, on the novel getting published. And um, and I think that leads us into really what the novel is and sort of what field the novel sits in. You've described it to me as speculative fiction. Can you tell me what is speculative fiction to begin with? Um, what isn't speculative <laughs> okay. fiction, really? Um, and the thing, there isn't a definitive uh, definition for it, and I wouldn't, you know, my definition is not any more definitive than a, than another specific author, but it's used as an umbrella term for kind of sci-fi fantasy horror when you want to talk about all the genres at once. It can be used, uh, and I've used it to indicate that I've I've blended um, literary techniques in with my genre fiction. But again, that's already it's a blurred line to start with. Uh, so, and sometimes it's used um, by sci-fi fantasy authors when they want to get some respect for their genre works from the literary community uh, because there there can be a bit of stereotyping there. So, I mean, I tend to define my work as. Uh, literary urban fantasy a lot of the time uh, when I'm telling people about it and that that's the best I have but uh, the labels are sort of constantly uh, flexible. So it's a bit of an umbrella term to avoid also maybe pigeonholing it too into a fantasy novel is only about this or only features those sorts of traditional things or stereotype stereotypical things too right? Yeah, and I, I think those boxes are problematic to start with. There's always, you know, I could name a dozen things that don't fit and then, you know, a bunch more that do that are categorized in different areas, but yeah. Mm -hmm. So what drew you to writing in this this genre and um, and was there something about the genre itself or maybe a special work that sort of made you want to explore it more or was it just what you're interested in? Honestly, I have always loved uh, works that have that kind of fantasy element. I mean, if you go back to my favorite childhood books, it would have been E.B. White's uh, The Trumpet of the and the Swan, uh, where the swan learns to play the trumpet and, and travel the world, or uh, Beverly Cleary's The Mouse, Mouse and the Motorcycle, where the mouse rides the little toy motorcycle all around the hotel. Like, all, I always loved works that had, you know, that kind of magical element to them while still being set in a, in a recognizable world. Um, Probably the book that Inveritas owes the most to is probably Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, I think would be my most uh, direct comparison. Although stylistically, uh, I've always really loved uh, Peter S. Beagle. So there's probably some of that in, in there too. Okay. And was that part about the, the sort of real world element? We're, we're going to get into that a little bit later on in our conversation. But was that something that... Um, that you particularly wanted to explore to not make it all completely fantastical? Was it was it sort of the grounding in reality that was important to you? Honestly, I mean, the book is set in Ottawa, but the very first draft of the book was not set in Ottawa. Uh, that when I wrote the very first draft, it was just set in the city and I didn't name the city. And 
I realized that the book needed more grounding in mm -hmm. order to have that really um, binary distinction between the magical world and, and the quote unquote real world. It had to be set somewhere that I knew and somewhere that I could flesh in with more detail. Uh, so the grounding came later, uh, but yeah, that definitely was one of the concerns. Well, I think we'll get into that a little bit more, but um, you have a short reading for us, and I think that would give us a good understanding of sort of where the book goes and uh, what the book is like, if you wouldn't mind doing that. Sure. Okay. So yeah, this is just a couple of minutes, and this is our protagonist, uh, Verity, who is synesthetic. Uh, she sees sounds, uh, she tastes things that she touches, all of her senses kind of get jumbled up together. And she lives in a townhouse uh, with her partner, Jacob. And here they have just finished a photography session uh, for a mother and two young children. And it's not going well. So Verity and Jacob exchange her pleading glance for his quick grin, and she edges into the front hall while he is still talking. It takes only a moment to slip on her shoes and lift her jacket and a soft gray scarf from the coat rack near the landing. A moment later and she's out the door, sliding her hands into her pockets. If the inside of the townhouse can be a well of confusion, marked by odd flurries of light and the snapping ozone of Jacob's ranging hobbies, then the city, as always, is a tornado. Verity stops on the front step and closes her eyes until she can reconcile the clouds that passing traffic sends snaking across her vision and the way the sun's warmth smells of oil and cloves. Only when she finds her balance among the sounds of the street does she allow herself to look at the spreading leaves of the oak tree, which chime like bells and lightly sting her fingertips, or the slab of sidewalk that tastes of lint and soiled leather. When the world resolves itself, the dog is waiting for her. It is a worn shred of shadow sitting patiently at the foot of the stairs, and yet it has a particular solidity as though the earth might crumble and open beneath the weight of its feet. Verity feels the gravity pull of it and she stills for a long breath before judging it safe to descend the steps. The dog remains sitting, its yellow eyes watching. It wags its tail once. Verity tries to keep her gaze steady but there's a bird in the tree chirping a streak of mauve. Then the door has opened behind her and the two children are streaming out and down the stairs. The young boy's squeals are a spike through her temple. The mother follows more sedately, hands clenched on her purse and an irritated sigh puffing her lips. She pays Verity no attention whatsoever. Puppy, yells the girl. The black dog bears its teeth, and she wisely detours in the opposite direction, her small feet barely wavering. She's been distracted by something crumpled and dry on the sidewalk, about 10 feet away. Her brother follows. Verity just glimpses the sad remnants of a cracked dragon wing and a scaled, half-flattened tail. Neat, crows the boy. His sister runs back to the base of the spreading tree. I need a stick, she proclaims. Need a stick, I wanna poke it. She sets one hand against the bark of the tree's trunk and stands on tiptoe, reaching up for the branches several feet above her head. What are you, oh, leave that alone. The children's mother finds her voice, stepping forward, her heels clicking on the steps and then the concrete until she can get a view of the sidewalk and the crushed form that has caught her son's attention. Don't touch that, honey. 
It's just a dead rat. It's full of germs. She ignores the dog, but she does cast a glance back over her shoulder at Verity. Someone should keep the property cleaner. Verity swallows the taste of cactus thorns. She wants to say, we have no rats. But when she opens her mouth, the woman has already moved on, grabbing the little boy's hand and hurting both children further down the block. Her arm is already waving as she hails a taxi. When Verity looks back at the sidewalk, she doesn't see wings anymore. Only matted fur and the stiff, wormy twig of a broken tail, now naked and pink. The dog has paced several feet away down the sidewalk, where it sits much more, waiting attentively. You want me to go with you, she guesses slowly. The dog waves its tail again. Where? The dog only cocks its head this time, one ear turning sideways. Verity sees the world stretching jagged and uncertain before her. In the shadow dog's attention, she feels the pull of the magician's gaze. In the maelstrom of the city, her balance shifts. At her back is the familiar comfort of the townhouse, the careful spaces she would know blindfolded, the golden dust of the kitchen, and the safety of Jacob's flashing grin. She could turn and take five short steps to refuge. On impulse, she draws a breath and turns slightly to the side, gesturing with her chin. The, um, dead thing on the concrete, she says. What is it? Did you see a rat too? She is, she realizes, standing on a city street, talking to a dog. The dog looks at her. Then it wags its tail again, deliberately, and lets its black tongue spill out over its teeth. It is, she thinks, laughing at her. Verity sighs and steps forward. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. I think it's it's an interesting reading because it's right before sort of the world opens up to her in many ways. Um, it is right least, before all this stuff happens. Right before everything, yeah, starts to starts to kick off for her. I'm curious about about why you chose to write about or explore a character with synesthesia, uh, especially given how different it is from the way that most of the people reading your book may experience the world. What was it about that way of experiencing the world that made either the story come to life or that made you want to bring it into the story? Well, I mean, to be honest, the way that Verity experiences synesthesia is also, I think, very different from the way that synesthetic people experience the world. Uh, it is a highly over-exaggerated uh, literary device. I kind of gave her all the sense in, senses mushing together at once. Um, one of the major themes of the book is about the limitations of language, uh, the way that it's really hard for us to convey truth to one another just using words. And the same, like, Ouroboros isn't really a dog. Colin isn't really an angel. And Verity isn't really synesthetic. Uh, but that is the closest word that she has to describe her experiences. And where it came from, um, well, first of all, I, I think the idea is neat. I actually got the idea of a synesthetic character from a friend of mine, Amy Shibasaki, who used it for a character of hers probably 25 years ago, and then very kindly allowed me to swipe it uh, and, uh, and play around with it myself. But I wanted a character who would be able to perceive multiple truths at once and multiple realities at once. And the way that I conceived of that was 
if she's taking in all of that information at the same time, her body's not going to be able to process it. Uh, like if she's literally seeing two different things at the same time, then maybe part of it is going to come through as sight and part of it is going to come through as a sound that she hears. Uh, but that's kind of what I was going for is it's, it's just her, her body's way of processing that sensory overload. And even that bit that you read, um, talks about that disorientation when she steps outside and she has to sort of take a moment to settle the world around her as she gets used to the new environment. I think that's something I've heard about synesthesia. If they maybe don't experience it to the same level, it still can be very disorienting in that way too. So it's an interesting way to capture that. Did, did that character, um, come because you wanted to write a book about this, 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 or was it a, more the character shaped the story that ended up coming out? I started with the characters. Um, I had most of them in my head already. A lot of them started off as um, characters I, I created for old role-playing games, honestly. And they all came from different settings and they all had different backgrounds. And I took the germs of those ideas, um, like a character whose synesthesia, who, who synesthesia perceives truth and um, an angel who can't heal himself. And, and kind of thought, okay, what's a story that I can come up with that's going to use all of these ideas that are already living inside my head? And that was, that was what came out was, was Verity in the city. And Verity as a character, you know, not being an author, I would find that very difficult or would assume it's very difficult to write that character because they can't convey the world that, you know, you're, you're sort of showing that they experience. So especially up to this point in the book that, that you read to where they don't have the awareness of the other characters similar to them. Um, the world that they're experiencing is quite different from every other person, except maybe the magician that they've, uh, that, that you've alluded to. So how do you approach writing that character, especially around the dialogue and the interactions with Jacob and with other characters who may not be exactly like them, um, and, and to communicate that? Yeah, Verity was tricky uh, because she is a very non-emotive character, which is not necessarily something that you want in the protagonist of your book, yeah. that you want people to care about and you want them to understand her point of view, but she never says stuff. Um, actually, that the scene I just read had part of it. When I first drafted the book, it was almost entirely third-person limited. Uh, so it was completely outside the heads of the characters and you only saw the actions that they performed and then kind of had to read into it. And the book is still mostly in third person limited, but I had to go back and break that wall in a few places for Verity. Um, and that the part I just read where she's standing on the townhouse steps and is thinking about how there's safety behind her and danger ahead of her. And that was something that got added in afterward because it, if I didn't add in something about her thought process, she was just too difficult uh, for anyone to care about on the page. And I would I would assume it's a little bit of conveying the head banging against a brick wall feeling as well that you need to somehow incorporate inside the thoughts rather than just showing them banging their head against the wall of never being able to be understood. Yeah, and, and there's a hint of that. And it's mostly the story's being filtered through the narrator. So hmm. I... And the, and the way it works in my head is, you know, as Verity has told the story to the narrator, she's conveyed some of her thoughts at the time. And therefore, since coming from, from her filtered through another character, that's why those thoughts were able to make it onto the page. Mm -hmm. 
And does that make it more descriptive based being a third person limited um, type style? You, you have to describe so much what is going on. How do you, how do you balance that level of description and, and then incorporate some of those internal thoughts? <laughs> I don't know that I don't know that I have balanced it. That is for the reader to decide. Uh, the, this book is a meal. Uh, it, it, it is not a it's not a fast read, and there is a lot of detail in it. And I was very conscious of that when I was writing it. Um, it's it, it's going to appeal to a certain type of reader, and it's not going to appeal to someone who is looking for a quick, fast-paced adventure. And that was kind of just something that I had to come to terms with. Uh, but when I offer descriptions. I'm trying for it to mean something. Like part of it is just to situate the reader in time and place. And part of it is to sort of keep that uh, narrative reminder of the way that Verity experiences the world and to try to give that, that sort of constant, because she is suffering a constant barrage of input. I didn't want the reader to suffer a constant barrage of input, but there is a constant flow of input in many layers. And in some way, it's it's an attempt to sort of capture that experience, if, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And did you have to change that when um, when describing or looking at other characters? Because there are elements within the book where Verity isn't around whether it's the story of Colin growing up um, or some of the other characters where, where it's a little bit removed from Verity. Did you have to change how you approached that for them? I, I, there's less internal monologue for them, I think. Uh, there, there's probably a, some of it in places like, I just sort of relaxed my approach as I was going through the book because I wanted people to, to generally care more uh, about the characters and it felt a little too removed from them. Uh, but yeah, all of the major characters have their own chapter and their own backstory. And Verity, I mean, with the exception of, I think, Jacob's chapter, just doesn't appear in them. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it, it's an interesting transition, actually going from describing things from her point of view to taking that out and not having that in, in descriptions. And now that I'm actually working on different projects and in Veritas is finished, it, was, it took a long time to get myself out of that headspace. Uh, because for a while, every time I was describing things, I was thinking of like four other things I could compare it to. Right, right. You're you're no longer needing to describe things through Verity's eyes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So it, it it took a little while to get into, but actually, I think it took longer to get out of. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, in the first meeting of this book club, I talked with young adult fantasy author Rachel Bell Irving about creating fantasy worlds within that real life setting. And we've we've already talked a little bit about that tonight, but you've chosen Ottawa for this story, uh, whereas the the sort of magical world element is set in the between. What can you talk about without giving too much away about that world, uh, about how you combined those two worlds and what role the real Ottawa had in shaping that? Well, I mean, it's set in Ottawa because Ottawa is probably the city that I know best. Uh, and like I said, the, the very first draft was just set in the city. And then when I realized, no, it, I mean, it can't be any city. I've got to make it a specific place. I mean, I'm not going to set it in New York because I've been to New York City once for two days. And that's probably not sufficient to write a really uh, compelling description. So the Ottawa that is in the book has some of my you know teenage haunts or early 20s like uh where the 
gray stone archway where Santiago gives his first performance in the Byward Market is the archway outside uh, what were two of my favorite restaurants. I don't know if either of them is, is still there anymore, but, or the, the theater is, it, if anyone's listening who is from Ottawa, it's like I took Barrymore's and the Mayfair and combined them and then put them in the wrong spot on Bank Street. Like there's, so there are a lot of little touchstones that are sort of places I, I know and, and things that I think of when I think of, of Ottawa, but there's not a lot of like the big touristy stuff. Like I don't think the parliament buildings are in there at all or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so was Ottawa, aside from being um, the place that you know best, is it a particularly fantasy prone city? I, I don't know if maybe uh, those of us who haven't been to Ottawa or don't think of Ottawa all that often, we have a very specific view of Ottawa being Parliament. Is there sort of a, you're walking down the street and you're automatically thinking about all these magical worlds that shoot off at every corner? There was a very kind review in, I believe it was uh, Canadian literature, uh, where he said that, uh, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember the reviewer's name offhand, but he, he identified that part of the, the book's fantastical elements sort of relied on Ottawa's reputation as the city that fun forgot. <laughs> Uh, and and that, that's not true. There are fun things to do in Ottawa, but it, but it does very much have the vibe of a civil service. The adult population works for the federal government. Uh, so there's a lot of, um, you know, concrete and, and government buildings. Uh, so yeah, in terms of offsetting that against, hey, there's this amazing magical world. It's not that Ottawa doesn't have, um, you know, hidden cool places. It's that they're usually not the first thing that someone thinks of when they think of the city. Mm -hmm. Which maybe hides the between, which is sort of supposed to be a hidden world in many ways, pretty well. Um, can you talk a bit about the between and where that idea came from? Where did that idea come from? <laughs> I was I was trying to figure out if there is a hidden world, where would they actually hide? And somebody, and I don't think this is much of a spoiler. The the between is an extra dimensional space which literally exists inside the walls of old building. So if, you know, between the wall behind me and it's actually my guest room on the other side, but if inside that wall, there was an extra dimensional space where, you know, magical people could like, uh, I wanted to say cavort, but that's wrong because they're sick and suffering. So they're all taking refuge inside that wall. But I, I wanted to, to just have a space that people who were not part of that world literally would not be able to perceive. Yeah. And it's a really good place to hide things, I think, too. <laughs> I like that. That when yeah, it... That's where I keep all my valuables is inside the wall. Right. I liked when that came in. That was a, a moment in the book where I went, oh, that, you know, I, I love this idea of a magical world hidden somewhere, you know, within my walls or whatever. I, I really like that. Um, you are a communications scholar as well as being an author, and you've had a variety of experiences in the communications field. I think you said journalism. Um, what, are, what are some of the other ones that you you worked in? Well, I never I, did, I was never uh, practicing, for lack of a better word, journalist. I did a journalism degree and uh, I have worked in public relations and marketing and I was a tech support supervisor for a while. Uh, I've taught uh, English 
overseas. Um, I right, right now, yeah, I'm a media studies scholar. You know, in in my spare time, I am a full time communications uh, academic, and yeah, I specialize in uh, pop culture, uh, television, video games, comic books, that kind of thing. So was that then naturally why your book is about? the struggles or the truths of communication or was that just something that is that that's why you're doing the communication scholar part because that's such a driving question for you is probably a chicken and the egg thing right i mean certainly there are elements of you know flat out textbook communications theory in the book i mean i named the theater after marshall McLuhan, uh but <laughs> Am I interested in the, did I become a communication scholar because I am interested in those questions? Yes, absolutely. I'm interested in the stories that we tell ourselves and representation and messaging and the way that misunderstandings and miscommunications happen. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, doubtless that has led to my choosing that as a professional field, but also, yeah, um, if someone's taken, you know, a, a 101 level communications theory course for me, they're definitely going to recognize some things in Inveritas. And how else has that influenced your writing? You're, you're talking about already moving on to other projects. Is that going to be a theme going through future projects as well? Probably. Um, honestly, I, I mean, I'm working on a second novel. It's not a sequel. It's just a, another book, but it is currently still like shredded scraps on my hard drive. I don't know uh, when it's going, when or if it's going to be a finished product, but definitely uh, storytelling is in there again. Um, and I think in telling stories, I'm interested in talking about the ways we tell stories and the limitations of telling stories and, and you know, the, the joy and the advantage of telling stories as well. Yeah, it's neat. Is it difficult to keep those stories moving forward or even just organized, especially on a personal project like this, when you have that, you know, spare time, full-time communication scholar side of your life, uh, and you're working really with other people's communication at the same time? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, having a full-time job that, that prevents me from uh, spending as much time as I would like writing fiction is by no means a problem that is endemic to me alone. Uh, but yeah, it's it definitely, uh, it is difficult, um, particularly now in the middle of the apocalypse, uh, to find time for uh, writing literature. Mostly what I found myself in was uh, my job was taking full-time hours. And then on top of that, I publish nonfiction, which was time on top of that and then in the extra 10 minutes of my week i was looking to get the novel done so i actually wrote it at 100 words a day uh for three years <laughs> to get the first draft it took from the time i started writing it to it actually getting published was about eight years and and so i mean that's a that's a process for sure but what was your process in terms of writing those hundred words did you was it, you know, whenever you weren't thinking about something else or did you try to dedicate 10 minutes to writing? How, how did you go about that? Some, for a while, I was keeping a, a netbook on my nightstand in the bedroom. And, and like the last thing I did before I go to, to sleep was load up the document and, and type in, you know, six sentences. But I, I, there's a very basic set of rules for my hundred word system. Um, it's a hundred word minimum. So like if you write, you know, 116 words to finish the sentence, whatever, like that's good. And you don't get credit for it the next day. 
So if I write 116 words one day, I, I don't get to play like, oh, well, today I only have to write 84. It's just like 100 words every day. And if you forget, then no guilt. So it also doesn't pile up and you don't find yourself like, oh God, now it's 600 words, now it's 700 words. Like if you missed a day, regroup, start again, 100 words. Um, and I just kept going like that uh, for three years. And then of course, after three years of writing 100 words at a time, I had a complete disjointed mess, but at least then I had something that I could edit and work on and, and put together and, and improve the flow. So it was about three years to the first draft and then two years of editing after that before I had something that was ready um, for other people to read and that was ready for me to actually start sending out to publishers. Hmm. Wow, that's a long, long process. <laughs> a lot of work to get that done. Uh, the narrator character is is almost... I mean, I almost took it almost like an editor in a way as well, where the narrator is reading or hearing about the story and then asking questions to Verity on the side of the story. Um, is that at all connected to the editor role that you've experienced or having to put those stories together? Is that your own <laughs> internal monologue? Oh, I mean, those those exchanges between um, Verity and the narrator, they were there from the beginning. I mean, they've always uh, been in there, but uh, certainly there there is some similarity there between uh, that and the comments that I would find uh, in the Word document. Although those tended to be things like, uh, you've accidentally used this word 79 times. Did you mean to do that? Uh, or this sentence doesn't make sense. Should we change it? So yeah, things like that. I hear that from the people. Uh, that by the way, my, my editor is uh, here and listening, so I should mention <laughs> that that was Anna Butler, and she did an amazing job. Thank you. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, well, I want to end our conversation with a recommendation from you, but before I do that, I did want to open the floor to any questions from our live virtual studio audience. So, if you have a question for CJ, just unmute yourself, jump in, and ask it. Hi. You asked why Ottawa. Um, you answered why Ottawa. I'm, I'm wondering if you you were conscious of the fact that you were actually paying homage as an urban fantasy to where modern urban fantasy was born. Oh, you mean Charles Delin's work? Exactly, yeah. Uh, it wasn't something that I did consciously, uh, but I am very much aware of uh, Charles Delin's work. And yeah, certainly urban fantasy uh, as a genre are arguably originated there with an Ottawa writer. Right, right. I, I got that resonance when I was reading it. I just, I, I thought, because you could have said it anywhere, right? Um, as you were saying, you said you're working on a project. It's probably going to take some time. Can you give a hint as to, uh, it's fiction, obviously. Is it going to be fantastic fiction, realist fiction, anything? It's fiction, and it is probably more fantasy than urban fantasy uh it, it, it's post-apocalyptic which i gotta say after the last year has really lost some of its luster for me yeah. <laughs> so uh we'll see whether it gets finished or, or tossed over in favor of other projects i'm also trying to work on some uh short stories right now i've got a short story coming out with fusion fragments it's going to be in issue number seven coming out uh i think somewhere around july of this year and that okay. one is straight up a futuristic fiction alien baby alien baby cool um my last question what are you reading 
for pleasure yourself and what are you recommending in fiction yourself? Let's see. I I was able to take a bit of a break over Christmas and actually do some reading for fun. I read uh, Premier Mohammed's Beneath the Rising, uh, which is excellent if you're into um, Lovecraftian tentacle novels. Uh, it was a really good read. Uh, the dialogue in particular, I really enjoyed. Uh, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia's Mexican Gothic uh, was very good. I read that over Christmas as well. I would also highly recommend for Gods of Jade and Shadow. And right now, I am really looking forward to uh, Sarah Gailey's The Echo Wife, which I believe is out soon. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for your questions. Yeah. Hi, CJ. Thanks <laughs> for the wonderful talk. Um, the question I have for you is related to sort of how we've kind of talked about fantasy and world building, especially for like magical worlds. I wonder if the, pro the approach that you took for this one being that blend of fantasy and reality, if you did the same kind of building magic around a system for the synesthesia portion, is it something where like there are rules to how she's synesthetic or is it just kind of the demands of what that particular scene is? You know, can you can you kind of talk a little bit more about how you decided what sensory impressions she was kind of getting in, in moment to moment? If it sort of follows that same sort of logic of building rules around magic, this happens because of a certain trigger or a certain idea. Yeah, so, um, I can tell you that there are not rules and that that was a very deliberate choice because I was trying to write uh, her synesthesia and the magic of the hidden world as something that could not be expressed through language. And the second I say, oh, well, here's the rule system for it, and it works like this, then I'm expressing it through language, and I've hampered the whole thing. So there are a, there are a few things that are consistent through the book, uh, like the association of uh, Ouroboros with lilac and coal is something that's a, a fairly consistent through line. But I know at one point I got a note uh, from the production editor at the press uh, and it was, I can't remember exactly which part of the book, but it, it was about, but there was a line in the book and, and she wrote, uh, I know that oil means this and here it seems inconsistent. Did you want to change that line? And I was like, oil doesn't mean that at all, but it's really interesting that someone took that away from it because there is no consistent system. So I left it inconsistent the way it was and did not change that line because I, I didn't want someone to be able to go through and say, okay, well, oil means this and light means this and a cactus means this. Because the second someone can quantify it in that way, uh, then the whole theme of the book is lost. Um, that said, though, there are, there are elements that you might associate with, um, you know, negative feelings and then maybe negative experiences negative senses <laughs> i remember one about uh i think it might have been even the one of the mother with the two kids but but one of the ones where there's somebody negative somebody mean and then you end up with the taste of cactus thorns was that purposeful though you wouldn't do that with rose petals or something like that as a, yeah, as well, a literary I'm, thing I, I th the cactus thorns were deliberate but i think there are other places in the book where you know something unpleasant happens and then it's associated with something nice okay. uh and so th there's sort of a general sense when i went through of like you know here's an unpleasant thing for verity and here's a nice thing for verity and and she generally i think 
experiences uh, light as things that are pleasurable, but there's not a whole lot of rhyme or reason. A lot of it is, you know, hey, what's next to me on the couch right now? Or what's playing in this ad on TV? Oh, autumn leaves, that's good. And, and then I would throw that in. Interesting. Any other questions? Not a question, but I really forgot to say how much I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, I don't mean to come off fanboyish, but it was really one of the best books I've read in the last year uh, or two. And thank you. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's so nice of you to say. I appreciate that. Well, thank you, everybody who did ask. And, and CJ, before we sign off, I was wanting you to do a recommendation. Um, I know you've already given a few, but what's a book that you're looking forward to reading in 2021? Either one that hasn't been released yet or one that's just been on your shelf? Or maybe what's one from that sort of genre world that your listeners may be interested in uh, in reading? Uh, man. Okay, well, I mentioned Sarah Gailey's uh, The Echo Wife. Uh, C.L. Clark has one coming out soon called The Unbroken, which I'm very interested in. And if Thames and Weir's Electo the Ninth is coming out this year, I'm not sure if it's the 2021 release, but if it is, uh, I will be lined up around the block for it. Perfect. Three good recommendations there. Well, thank you very much, CJ, for joining us. Uh, it's been great to be able to hear about your book and your writing, 100 words at a time or more. Um, it's been really neat to, to hear some of that. So thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again to CJ Levine for joining me for the first book club meeting of 2021. It was really interesting finding out that speculative fiction covers so much of what we read, learning about the development of characters with such unique experiences of the world, and finding out it is possible to write a great novel 100 words at a time. If you want to learn more about C.J. Levine, check out her website, cjlevine.com. I'm excited to announce that the book club is getting extended into February. Join me on February 18th at 8 p.m. Mountain Time for a conversation with poet, environmentalist, professor, farmer, traveler, and writer Jenna Butler. We'll be talking about everything from beekeeping to boating in Svalbard. It could be one of the biggest episodes yet. You can register for the conversation on my website at benfast.ca slash cool slash book club. And that's book club all one word. I'm halfway through the Museum of Forgotten Memories by Anstey Harris, but with the temperatures dropping here in Edmonton, I might need to pull out another Antarctic exploration book to brush up my cold weather survival skills. I've got a biography of Roald Amundsen looking pretty good for that one. What are you reading these days? You can send me a recommendation on Facebook at well, that's cool Pod, or on Twitter at well underscore that's cool, or you can also send me an email at wellthatscoolpod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Ron Yamauchi for the theme tune and to Anna Schroeder of Another Design for the Cool Podcast logo. Check out her work at ANNATHERdesign.com. Other music heard during this episode and all the other podcast stuff is done by me, Ben Fast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, stay well and happy isolation reading. <laughs>